everyone. This is Kate Stanton, host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Jia Jia Yi, CEO and co-founder of Springtide Child Development, which provides integrative, evidence-based, and family-centered care for children with autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. Jia Jia began her career in finance, but transitioned to being an operator in healthcare due to a desire to make an impact and work on complicated problems. Prior to founding Springtide, she held leadership roles at a number of healthcare organizations, including One Medical, Oscar, and Oxion Partners. Since Springtide's founding less than two years ago, the company has shown tremendous momentum, opening four in-person technology-enabled clinics and hiring over 100 people. In this episode, Jaja and I discuss how Springtide's clinical model differs from the status quo, how this leads to superior outcomes, where Springtide is going in the future, and how Jaja takes a team-centric approach to leadership. Jaja, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm super excited to be here. I've uh, known people that have worked on this at Wharton, and so I'm excited to participate. Great. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on. I'm not sure if I told you this, but you are actually my first guest. This is my first Pulse recording. So while I expect all of my episodes over time to be memorable, I I think this one (laughs) will always be particularly special. (laughs) That's great. So to kick us off, I want to ask you a question that we ask nearly all of our guests. And this question is, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, when I was a kid, I actually thought I was going to be a doctor. Uh, My mom was a doctor. And so I just kind of always figured like, you know, what else do you do? I didn't really know that many adults in my life. And so I didn't know what else other uh, opportunities could be. So when I was a kid, I actually thought I was going to be a doctor. And then when I went to undergrad, I actually started out pre-med and then at some point took David Cutler's um, class, The Economics of Healthcare. And that just completely transformed my thinking. And I started realizing it's so, there's so much to be done on the sort of systemic side. Um, And that's what got me really excited and kind of why I've stayed in healthcare. I know that you've spent your career in healthcare, um, beginning as a healthcare financial analyst, and then taking on leadership roles at One Medical, Oscar, and Oxion, which are not only major healthcare companies, but also all healthcare companies that start with O, I realized. Mm -hmm. And now you're at Springtide. So, I'd love to hear a bit more about how these experiences or professional or or personal goals you've had influenced your path into the healthcare industry, aside from your your early interest in healthcare as a kid. For me, there's two main reasons um, why I really, really love healthcare. Uh, The first is the mission orientation. And I think there's probably lots of folks who listen to this or lots of folks in the healthcare industry really feel this way. Um, You know, I think at the end of the day, I always think I just have to feel really proud on a very molecular level of what it is that I do. And that isn't necessarily about the achievements that I accomplish, but just like kind of how I'm contributing to society. And on a day-to-day basis, am I doing something that's good? And I'm doing something that I am excited to just tell people about. And so, you know, I love telling people that I work with kids with autism and that we're providing, you know, better care. And I love sharing the stories and I love like seeing all the, you know, the photos and the, the, the case studies of the progress in our kids. So 
on a very molecular level for me, um, I love the mission orientation of healthcare and it feels kind of meaningful to just spend time doing it. Um, the second thing for me, why I've always loved healthcare is that the problem is really complicated. And I think everybody can say this about their industry, but I think what's really interesting in healthcare is there's this texture to the problem um, that I don't think I see exist anywhere else. You know, I think when we're in healthcare, we not only think about, okay, how do you get, you know, all the participants involved? How do you get the family involved? But then you think about, okay, what's the ethical and moral implications of what I'm doing? Is there the right fairness and equity? Uh, am I making the right societal impact and having the right, you know, positive externalities? And how am I doing this in an environment and in a subject matter that oftentimes there's not great transparency, not great information, it's really complicated. So I think a lot of these sort of like, added richness to the problems that we try to solve for me, make it really exciting to work in. Totally agree that the the doing good parts of healthcare, as well as the complexities of, of the problem, it's a unique combination. So getting a bit more into Springtide. So Springtide serves a fairly specific patient population, which is children with autism spectrum disorder what inspired or drove you to work on this problem in particular, as it, it sounds like you care a lot about a number of problems in, in healthcare? So when I was a, uh, a kid, I grew up in Salt Lake City, um, Utah, and we actually had a really close family friend with a kid with autism. And I remember how distinctly difficult it was. At the time, in the entire state of Utah, there were zero therapists. And so the family had to fly their therapist out from Boston to Salt Lake once a month. Um, and I remember how difficult it was and also how impactful that was for the family. And so that's not to say like my whole life, I've been you know sure that I want to work in the space. That's not it at all. What happened was um, more recently, um, I started kind of exploring kind of different areas and seeing what was out there. And um, when I started to re-look at autism, the thing that really jumped out to me was, oh my gosh, now we've fast-forwarded 30 years. The science around uh, working with kids with autism, the therapy, the decrease in stigma, the increase in insurance coverage, there's been a lot of major, major, major improvements in the space. And yet when I was seeing kind of family experiences, it felt exactly the same as it did 30 years ago when I was in Salt Lake and that families today still have that moment of, oh my gosh, what do I do? I don't know where to turn. I don't know how much this is going to cost. I don't have the resources. And it's still this incredibly overwhelming experience for families. And so that was sort of a moment where it sort of struck me as, hey, this is really weird. Like there's been so much interesting progress in the space, but the end patient experience and the end outcome is not that much better than it was a long time ago. And so that was the moment that it got me kind of thinking like, what is it? What's missing in this industry? Um, and so that's kind of how I ended up really digging in and getting really excited about the opportunity to really bring a lot of my experience from one medical and customer experience and delighting customers and, you know, good customer service. <laughs> And then also with Oscar, um, similarly around using technology to simplify the customer experience, creating very good clarity around value-based care. Um, I saw a lot of opportunity to kind of use those experiences and come build something in this industry. Super fascinating. I guess digging into that a bit more. So you, you describe this disconnect between scientific developments and those in medicine, but how it's not necessarily impacting patients and their families. Why do you think that this disconnect exists? I think there's a lot in the way that 
the autism industry is structured that is causing some of this disconnect. And that's kind of where I sort of really see an opportunity to come in and do something that is really different. You know, one in 54 kids right now is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. So it's almost 2% of kids. Actually, the CDC, I think, most recently even issued a report that was one in 44 um, which is just so wild. This growth has been so fast across the population. And when parents get that diagnosis, it sort of is a, a moment where they kind of come to a screeching halt um, in their lives where they say, oh my gosh, what do I do? What's the future of my child going to look like? You know, what can they uh, progress towards and what kind of care do I get and how do I afford it? Right. But the way that the industry has sort of met this need um, historically has been very fragmented and um, very much point solutions. Um, so when you look at the space, the vast majority of therapists that operate in the space are mom and pops. Um, and it is not connected to a lot of the other things the families need. So 80% of kids that have autism have major comorbidities across sleep, feeding, GI, epilepsy, genetic disorders. Um, and there isn't... Um, sort of the focus around that entire um, entire experience, which really um, misses out on how to think about that child's progress. And because it's kind of very fragmented, what you typically see on the therapy side is that you have a lot of therapists who have um, very intensive care where you treat the kids upwards of 30, you know, 40 hours, but don't do a great job of creating the visibility of what the future looks like. Don't do a great job of actually painting the picture of what progress should look like and how do we actually get your kid fully integrated back into the school system. And so what a lot of families experience is, okay, I've got intensive therapy, intensive therapy. I don't know where this goes. And then suddenly without kind of a lot of visibility, the insurance company will come in and say, well, you've run out of your benefits and we actually have to decrease the hours that you're authorized for. And that's just an equally jarring experience um, for the families. And so what we're doing at Springtide is we're really trying to zoom out a bit from that, right? And really zoom out and look at the broader picture. And our mission in that is to be the partner for families uh, that families can turn to for a holistic and evidence-based care, and that we're delivering an approach that's really tailored to each family's unique situations. Really great to hear a comparison of, uh, I guess, what the status quo has looked like for patients with ASD and how Springtide is paving a new way for that. To go in a bit more depth about the Springtide model, I think a, a way for myself and our listeners to understand this even more deeply is if you could walk us through the experience of a new patient and their family enrolling in, in Springtide's program. What does that look like for the first maybe month or, or six months? So when families come to Springtide, the first and most important thing that we work with families on is creating the right visibility into that journey. So a lot of times families are in a moment where they just got that diagnosis. They don't know what that means and they're looking for a therapist. And most therapists will say, great, come on to therapy. We'll work with your kid. But they don't create that map and that journey for the family. And that is super, super, super important in the ability for the parents to, one, kind of plan and see what the potential is. And then two, be able to hold us accountable for the outcomes, right? We need to actually be able to show this. These are the areas that we think your kid will develop progress. And then we need to be able to show that. So families will come in and we kind of help sit down with them. We um, go through a, a session where the therapist will meet with the families and understand their goals, understand where the kid is, 
um, engage with the kid and then create an, a kind of a custom assessment um, tool and progress for them. Then along the way, um, we make sure that we have great parent engagement. So we work with the families every week or every other week um, on goals that the parents need to have um, around working with their kid to make sure that parents really feel confident and prepared um, to engage with their kids and really understand what's happening. One of our values is to assume it's possible. And really, that's so important. A lot of times families will come in and say, you know, my kid can't do this. My kid can't do this. And what's really powerful is when we're able to show them your kid can, and let's actually change that thinking and think about what can they do and where can they get to. And then let's figure out what might be different in the in the classroom environment versus the home environment. And then once you're able to diagnose that, you can really get to a point where the families can also start to see the same outcomes and sort of same engagement even in the home as well. One thing that I, I'd been doing some reading about before this episode was how having a child with ASD can affect the experience of being a parent as well as how it can impact things like loss of productivity for parents, which means foregoing income. So it's it's awesome to hear about all the support that Springtide provides for, for parents and how they are a super important part of the process and making sure that it, it works for them as well. Yeah, it's really in the research Good parent engagement is the most important indicator of child success. And I, I just think the industry has really missed this. There's a lot of opportunity here. And a lot of this is making it easy for the family, right? It's for us that we have all the therapists in one location. So the family can stop here. We can coordinate, you know, your ABA therapy, OT, speech, physical therapy, whatever it is, we can coordinate all of that. We can also offload a lot of burden um, around some of the administrative stuff with the families. We also coordinate with your school to make sure that um, if you are getting resources with the school system that we're collaborating. And then on the um, on some more of the sort of care navigation and care coordination side, what we found has been incredibly powerful is also helping parents prepare for some of their medical visits because not all physicians understand how to work with kids with autism. And so we will sit down with a parent and actually uh, prepare them for what to expect in that visit, what information is important to share, what questions are important to ask. And we've had some really interesting cases where it's led to, led to a really like amazing clinical outcome. We had, you know, we had one child who was um, experiencing kind of very distinct energy differences. And the family had met with their, um, we had said, you know, feels like you should talk to your primary care physician. They went to their primary care physician, their physician said, oh, this seems like a behavioral issue. Well, we came back and we talked about it and we said, hey, you know, these are the sort of things that we need to be actually looking for and have the conversation around. Turned out this kid actually had type one diabetes that had gone undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And so that was amazing because now we actually have an early diagnosis and we can support the child. We can actually support the child through therapy around their feeding behaviors and around eating a diversity of foods. Um, we can make sure that we're monitoring their monitor levels. We can uh, work with the parents on the medic uh, medication adherence. So there's just a ton of things that we can do. And there's a great sort of partnership between the behavioral and the medical side that we want to impact. That reminds me of the earlier point you made about fragmentation, which I, I think you were referring to just in terms of the different sites where a child might receive support. But if we think about fragmentation across healthcare, that could be you see five different providers and they don't speak to each other, or have patient information shared across site. So it's also really interesting to see how 
Springtide is is integrating with the larger healthcare delivery system and and supporting patients through their really entire healthcare journey. Exactly. And I I think it's also that just a lot of physicians don't even know how to engage. So a lot of kids are, for example, are nonverbal. And so, you know, for a physician that isn't familiar with how to engage with a kid that's nonverbal, okay, well, then we have to prepare the family so that they understand how to engage with that physician. So there's a lot of things that we can do to really kind of help that that, that child holistically. I want to pivot a bit and take a look at what Springtide accomplished last year in 2021 as 2022 is just getting started. Can you provide some context for what the Springtide team looks like today, how much you grew last year, and any milestones you reached in 2021 that you're particularly proud of? I'd love to. (laughs) It was an (laughs) awesome year. Uh, We grew last year from one site, our very first site in Connecticut, to four sites across two states. So we've now grown um, in Connecticut as well as Massachusetts. Our fifth location is coming live next month, um, also in Massachusetts. So we're really excited about that. Um, So I think we've had some great growth. We uh, received the highest accreditation from the BHCOE, which is a national accrediting body um, for ABA providers. And we're actually the only provider in the entire state of California, in Connecticut, we're the only provider in the state of Connecticut to have actually achieved that rating. So we were super proud of that. That was for us a signal of the clinical quality that we've got and the, the strength of the team that's building it. And I think for me, the, the most important metric and sort of the North Star of our company is around the clinical outcomes. And we have now had about a year and a half, almost two years under our belt of kids kind of being with us. And we've just had really exceptional clinical outcomes. And that for me is the thing that really, really, really kind of I feel the most proud about. That sounds like a ton of really exciting growth and and a lot to be proud of. Two things that I want to hear a bit more about. The first is around clinical outcomes. How are some of the ways that you measure those and collect data on that? So we think about um, outcomes in three different areas. So the first is going to be on the learning gains. Um, And so that's going to be around the child's progress around whatever the, the, the goal is that they're setting. You know, this needs to be done in a way where you have to give the child the right assessment at the very beginning, and then you see their progress across this assessment every six months. Um, the second area that we think about outcomes is around efficiency. So this is really important. A lot of practices that don't have this sort of clinical orientation, what they're focused on is billable hours, and they're focused on retention, right? Because that's the way that you make sort of a, a traditional fee-for-service revenue. But We think about it as, no, we actually want to have incredible efficiency because if we have great clinical outcomes, we can actually get better and better with the throughput of the kids coming to our therapist. And we actually want to track, are we hitting sort of the reduction in hours and the return to school at the rate we want to see? Because we believe that the true way to ultimately solve the access gap that's in the industry and solve the six to 12 month wait list times is that we need to be able to make our therapists so much more effective that they're able to have that incredible throughput. That's a very interesting self-fulfilling cycle too, because as therapists start to engage with more and more kids, they become better. You start to recognize new patterns faster. You're able to try different skill sets. And so you actually become a much better therapist at the same time. 
And so that's kind of a, a second measurement for us. It's around the efficiency of our practice and making sure that we're able to achieve the goals that we want for actual reduction um, in pure therapy hours. The third measurement that we look at is um, parent satisfaction and parent readiness. Again, engaging the family to be um, part of the care and engaging the family to understand what's going on and engaging the family to be successful in the home, right? We need to make sure that while the kids are in the home, that the parents are also reinforcing the same uh, things that they're learning in the centers. We need to make sure that families are not conflicting with some of the therapy practices. And we need to make sure that parents just feel really confident um, in working with their kids. Um, So the third measurement is around sort of parent um, experience and parent um, comfort uh, and and confidence with with the situation. I think you touched on this, but an area that I'm particularly interested in better understanding is how you acquire patients. And we've seen lots of startups approach this and they're, they're used by creating employer partnerships as well as um, partnering with health plans to become in-network. So how does Springtide acquire new patients? Yeah, I think the, the ideas that you've described are, are how we approach it. You know, on a very basic level, the two main ways that we get kids are um, sort of directly um, from word of mouth or from families. Um, in this space, the autism community is very tight knit um, and the moms are actually very close. Um, And so we do see a fair amount from um, whether it's digital or other direct to consumer methods. Um, We actually do get a lot of our patients from folks that are uh, families that are looking for care directly. Um, And then the second pathway that is pretty um, dominant is the physician referral uh, channel. Um, And I think this is sort of where we really stand out. Um, So because of our outcomes orientation and because of our whole child approach, um, we are much more collaborative with physicians and we share data with the physicians and we want to engage the physicians um, around the child's journey. And I think that's where we're really unique. And so we've been hearing from the physician community a lot of positive receptivity um, towards our practice. We are also working on some much larger scale um, approaches. I mean, this goes to the value-based care side, but around partnering with payers and partnering with other physician groups that are taking risk um, in helping them manage their um, autism population. So it's a bunch of different ways, but it's exactly kind of how, how you're describing it. Really helpful to understand more about what I'll just call the demand side. And I want to move to the supply side now. Can you share a bit about what Springtide strategy is for hiring and retaining the best therapists? Is that definitely sounds like a core piece of not only your clinical model, but also your your ability to achieve your desired patient outcomes? Absolutely. And I think this is a space that everybody struggles with. It's an industry that has um, really had access gaps across the across the country. And so being able to hire, retain, train the best therapists is super important. And for us, it really starts at the mission and approach that we take. So because of our outcomes focus and because of our sort of focus on training and retention, it really stands apart. In a traditional practice, Again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but in a traditional practice, it's the, the conversation is around retention and billable hours and how well is the therapist doing on that. That really loses the loses, you know, you lose sight of what's best for the kid and you lose sight of what internally motivates 
all of our team that has come into this space, right? They came into this space because all of us are really passionate about it and we really care about the kids and the families. And so it's really important to align the mission and the approach of what we're doing with the internal motivation of the therapists that join us. And I really think that that is very unique about our culture and we see it throughout all of our therapists. Hiring is something that I'm also super personally passionate about. I've grown really large teams in the past. And I think when we hire at Springtide, we are really focused around hiring for people's potential versus you know, interviewing and rejecting for something that's missing, right? Like I always think mm-hmm. it's important to think about where can they go into the future with us. And so we put a lot of thought in the way that we, you know, design our questions, we design our case studies. It's really focused on the growth skill set of the person um, versus the sort of historical experience. And it's been really great. We have put together a really robust training system. We put together a really great career trajectory and competency mapping. And I think it works. We, we see that we have better retention in our technicians than the industry average. And I think people really enjoy working here. That's great. And I'm, I'm always especially interested to hear about how, how companies are building culture based on hiring practices and hiring from within and, and really creating those, those long-term paths so that employees can stay engaged for the long run. So zooming out a bit, I'd love to better understand some of the larger market forces that influence Springtide's position in this market and its strategy. So over the past few years, we've seen a lot of investment activity and new companies pop up in the autism care space and more generally in the pediatric behavioral health space, including LME and Songbird, to to just name a few. What do you think accounts for all of this activity? I think it's just because there's a huge need. Uh, With autism now being in almost 2% of kids and wait lists being anywhere on average from 6 to 12 months and an industry that has $54 billion in spend on therapies, uh, of which the vast, vast majority is going to very fragmented independent mom and pop solutions, I think there's just a big, big opportunity to do this better. I think that parents are craving it. I think payers are craving it. I think other provider groups are craving it. Um, And so I think, you know, there's a lot coming in here because there really is genuinely a really big need for it. One other thing I would also say is, you know, it's been interesting operating in this space over the last two years, in particular with COVID. And COVID has also created a really unique, I think, situation where it's been tougher, you know, all of us, right? All of us are working in these unique environments, but just imagine having sort of kids with special needs also in this sitting uh, situation. Really, there's a kind of extreme lack of predictability. There's a lot of added stress and sickness in the family. There's disruptions to the child's care. So right now, there's also this other thing that's happening where I think when we come out of this, we're actually going to see an even greater demand for the next 10 years, um, while we have a lot of ripple effects of what's been happening over the last two years. Let's talk about another force that I think is impacting care delivery for ASD, and that is healthcare policy. In preparation for this conversation, I learned a bit about how in the last decade or so, states have mandated that ABA or applied behavioral analysis 
it must be covered by insurance as a behavioral benefit for autism. How do you think this has influenced the high amount of activity we've seen in the ASD treatment arena or how care for ASD is delivered? Oh, it's it's absolutely a, a big factor. When, when you think about sort of the growth in the prevalence or you growth in the diagnosis rates of autism, definitely some of this has been increasing prevalence, but there's also been a lot of structural factors that have led to this. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, sort of coverage by insurance, that's been one really large factor. Another has been, you know, the growth of organizations like Autism Speaks, which has really done a tremendous job in increasing the awareness, but also decreasing the stigma and the fear associated with it. So they've done an amazing job. Now also early um, programs in like birth to three programs where screening and early diagnosis is much more prevalent. Um, I think pediatricians are much more aware of it and much more likely to see it and be able to recommend families to go for additional care if they suspect something. So I think across the whole ecosystem, there are a lot of structural things that are leading to a lot of the better diagnosis and awareness around it. Yeah, fascinating to hear about the compilation of of factors that that, that have led to this. I want to now look at the future of Springtide, as well as dig into some areas around your care strategy and and how this might look in the future. So we've already discussed value-based care a bit, and it seems like Springtide's main differentiators, likely among others, are around delivering holistic care, having a really intentional care model, hiring and supporting high quality providers and achieving superior clinical outcomes. So I think I think having a, a conversation about value-based care um, makes some sense. And I saw that you hired, I believe earlier in 2021, a head of value-based care, which is very exciting. So today, what aspects of the Springtide model are value-based? So when I think about value-based care, there's sort of three tenants that I think are most important to be able to deliver on. Um, The first is to be able to deliver on improved quality and clinical outcomes. Uh, The second is to deliver on improved efficiency and cost management. Um, And the third is to um, improve upon the experience of the families. And so when we approach value-based care, we come at it from all three of those kind of goals and those three priorities, which actually, you know, relates back to, I think earlier you asked me, what are the yep. metrics we measure ourselves by? So they really kind of mirror that. And that's how we think about, are we truly um, delivering a true value-based um, experience? And what we've been seeing from payers is they want all three, right? Uh, payers are saying, look, cost is an issue. So kids with autism will cost $50,000 plus per year on just the ABA therapy alone add in another $50,000 for the medical side, kids with autism do cost payers a lot. So payers are worried about the cost, but payers are also worried about just pure quality. What the number one thing we've heard from payers is it's not just about the cost, but it's, I don't know what I'm getting. None of the providers that we work with focus on outcomes. None of them report outcomes. None of them measure their outcomes. And we can't understand what is the value that we're getting for this. The average um, payer will spend about 2% of their MLR on just the ABA Hmm. therapy side alone, which is huge for a payer. You know, your margins are in the low single digits. And so that is a very meaningful impact for a therapy that has no 
sort of equipment, no technology, no hospitalization, no inpatient, no medicine, right? It's a, a, a really like a therapy. And so that's a huge, huge cost um, that I think payers are experiencing. But again, the number one thing we're hearing from payers is, but I actually can't understand what's the value and what's the sort of outcomes. So that's why that is the absolute North Star. One question that I have that may or may not be an interesting one is what is the payer mix for the ASD population and how has that impacted either your operational approach or um, priorities? So we take all insurances uh, at Springtide. And so that means that we take commercial payers. We also take Medicaid. Um, Medicaid is a very important player in this space. A lot of states Autism is one of the medical conditions that allows you to qualify for Medicaid, similar to, you know, kidney uh, failure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, Medicaid is very important. Medicaid is also very important because for a lot of these kids, um, if they don't actually get the right support and treatment early on in the later years will also become part of Medicaid. And so I think Medicaid is very active in engaging in this. Um, So for us, we have a, a complete mix. What are some capabilities either as a business or within your care model that you don't currently offer that you think will have a major impact on improving quality, efficiency, cost, or the patient experience? Absolutely. So one of the things that we're actually working on right now is around insourcing and actually being able to provide some of that medical care directly through us. Um, Right now, we have a lot of medical partners that we work with. And again, it can be tough because for them, they could be the best GI physician, but maybe not work with an autism population. And what we've actually discovered is that for four key comorbidities, there are a series of symptoms and experiences that the kids have. We're having somebody that bridges that clinical knowledge and bridges that behavioral health knowledge can really make a difference. An example is you know, how, how do you engage with a child who is experiencing pain if the child is nonverbal? Well, there are certain techniques and tactics and scales that we can use to measure that. So we think there's a lot of opportunity for us to actually insource some of that and do it directly through our practitioners um, that we want to have. So that is an area where we're, we're kind of working through, you know, right now we're at the point where we're working mostly through the families with their physicians, but we just see a lot of potential of us actually kind of being able to do this ourselves as well. So switching gears a bit to penultimate topic before we get to the last one, and that is around equity in healthcare. And as you know, and our listeners know, the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated a lot of issues with the U.S. healthcare system, including bringing to light inequities in accessing high-quality care across race, geography, income level, and more. And, And I'm very intentional to say it exacerbated. It didn't create them. These existed before. Now, I read that children of color are more likely to be diagnosed with ASD later and less often than white children. And I'm sure there are many other sort of stories and and facts like this that point out to the inequities that exist within the population of children with ASD. So how is Springtide making high quality care more accessible to all children with ASD, regardless of of background? I think this comes back to the main sort of market flaw that's happening, which is major access gaps throughout the space. When you have access 
gaps, that's when you tend to also see this inequity, right? It's the people that can get those resources and the people that can find the solutions. Um, and so for us, that goes back to, again, our North Star of how do we actually get better outcomes to get better throughput? That to me is the ultimate way to build access in the system. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in the industry is actually the number of licensed therapists have actually doubled in the last five years. So when you look at a graph hmm. of the licensed therapists, it is a, it's an incredible growth where 50% have been licensed for less than five years. The problem though, is that doesn't solve the access gap because most of those practices, again, focus on retention and billable hours. And so it's great that there's a lot of new therapists that are coming to the space, but if they're focused on retention and billable hours, you're not actually getting very rapid access. What we want to do is for every new person that's coming on board, have them be able to treat more and more people, right? So that's kind of really fundamental to us is I think a lot of this comes from the fact that access is an issue and access is not being solved by um, just kind of producing more therapists, you know, and then for us, it is something that we're very conscious of. Um, So it is important for us that we serve a wide range of clients. We take Medicaid clients, we take commercial clients. Our chief clinical officer actually has written and published documentation on how to support um, equity in, you know, treating families with autism and how do we get the right cultural sensitivity and the right language training. It is something that we are very conscious of because I think you're exactly right. It's an area that does have um, disparities and it's important for us to be able to work with all kids. Yeah. And, and your point about cultural, culturally competent care, culturally affirming care, I imagine working with families as well, that makes it even more important and your knowledge and focus on their involvement because of how critical that is to improved outcomes. I, I imagine that makes that element uh, just really critical. A hundred percent. Like if a family has a unique environment that has extra stress or certain situations of the kid, it's important for us to know, right? And it's important for us to engage with that family at that level to understand what their situation is so that we can work with their kid. So our last topic is leadership. It's one that sounds like is very near and dear to your heart and one that I'm really interested in and, and focused on. A lot of our listeners are students who are preparing to take on leadership roles in the future or professionals currently in leadership roles or, or on track to take them in the future. So what is your leadership style and, and why does it work for you? I think my leadership style is one that's super focused on the team. I have always said that I'm never the smartest person in the room. I can probably guarantee in every single room, um, I'm not the smartest person. And even in that room, the smartest person still needs to be very effective in collaborating with the team because the only way to do the things we want to do requires a lot of team collaboration. And so my leadership style is focused a lot on building the right team, building enough structure and air traffic control for the team to be effective, and then really leaning very heavily on the team to be able to work together. I think this is important because it really allows for um, a lot of ownership and pride and authorship throughout the organization. I think it is much more scalable. um, And I, I honestly think it gets to the best outcomes and the best answers because decisions can be made at the right local level where people have the most information. So that for me is like something that's very fundamental. I do think it's like 
about matching that style. You know, I liked your question about sort of saying like, what is your style and why does it work for you? Because you have to find your own certain style. I once worked in an organization that was like completely different than my style and I did not fit. I completely flailed and just did not do well. Um, and this was an environment that was not about the team and sort of localization of decision-making. This was a company where it was much more about hierarchy and around sort of trickle down decision-making. Um, and in that environment, you know, um, the leader really needed to like make all the decisions and people all needed to follow the leader. And it was absolutely not okay to not follow the leader. And I struggled because I sort of thought, gosh, I don't know if I'm making the right decisions. I don't know if I'm like always making the best um, decision. And then my team struggled because they sort of felt like we don't know what to do. Like you're not, you're not telling us. And so I think it's about finding that right style um, for certain people where it's a bit more command and control, that style will really fit. Right. And that style for certain types of businesses will make a ton of sense for businesses that have intricate operations that have very local nuances that want to scale. I think the team orientation is a little bit better, but you know, I, I would encourage people to kind of really think about their style and they'll people will become successful leaders in sort of the right styles and the right places that match their, their personalities. My next question is related to some advice I received from a mentor a few years ago. And it was that as I progress in my career, that I should be doing more of what I like doing and doing less of what I don't like doing. So what do you love doing in your role at Springtide? So I'll tell you my favorite thing as the CEO, which is this is my first time as a CEO, but I'll tell you my favorite thing as a CEO is I feel like I have a front row seat to some of the best thinking and creativity ever. Mm. And that is so cool. I encourage anybody, I encourage everybody to try this role once. For example, we have a chief clinical officer who is one of the leading thinkers in the space on staff at the best academic institutions, really pushes the boundaries. And when I watch him and I, I see how he thinks, it's just mind-blowing. And I really love it. My chief business officer launched basically all of value-based care at Massachusetts Medicaid. She and I think completely opposite, 180 mm -hmm. degrees. And so when I watch her do things, I think I've never once thought about problem solving that way. Um, and I see her do things in a completely different way. My CFO has scaled multiple you know, behavioral health companies. So for me, that's honestly the coolest part about this seat in particular is that I get to watch the people who are the best at their skill set perform it. And I get to get that front row seat and I get to like really intimately understand their thinking. And so that's kind of what I, I love. So my last question is a lot of MBA students listen to The Pulse. So I'm sure that we're all thinking about after listening to this episode and, and feeling energized about what Springtide is doing is, do you expect to be hiring for post-MBA roles in the near future or perhaps down the line? Absolutely. Um, I We've grown so much. So as an organization, we've grown from, I think, 20 people at the beginning of the year to over 100 by year end. And we see a lot more growth ahead of us. And I would love to hire post-MBA um, folks. Uh, if I can interject just one story of kind of how I even got into startups myself. So I, I started in the finance side. Um, went and got my MBA and then started interviewing at startups. And when I interviewed at One Medical, they said to me, well, what do you really want to do? And I literally said, I have no idea. All I know is that I'm smart enough and I have a really good attitude. <laughs> and that was such a moment where um, my boss there really took a gamble on me. I had no 
skill set other than working in a transa- transactional finance environment. But I just knew that I would have a good attitude coming into it. And so I think that they saw some growth potential or growth mentality in me <laughs> and that kind of what they took a gamble on, but really has set the direction of my career in a really specific way. And so I would love to chat with other sort of MBAs that are trying to figure it out and really excited to work in something that feels meaningful and really are committed to doing something that's mission oriented. Jaja, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I learned so much about Springtide, your background, the company's future, and a lot of larger lessons about, I think, working in healthcare. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Kate. This was really fun.